Welcome to the Real Estate Explainer Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kazule. Today, we've got Neil Timmons on the episode talking about commercial real estate, specifically transitioning from a residential real estate investor into a commercial real estate investor or skipping the residential real estate investor stage altogether. Let's go ahead and jump right into the episode. Hey, Neil, just wanted to say thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I'm super excited to talk about commercial real estate and specifically transitioning from residential real estate and moving over towards commercial property or skipping residential altogether and starting in commercial real estate. So with that, I'll just let you kind of jump in and take it away. I'm excited to be here, Brian. Thanks so much for for having me. Why don't we start in the beginning? How about that? 19 years ago, well, I'll, I'll take it back one more year. 20 years ago, I'm working as a banker at Wells Fargo. My mom and I are talking at one day and she's going, uh, I'm thinking about what to do. I'm thinking about getting back into the workforce. I've raised you, me, and my three younger brothers. They're now all out of the house and uh, I don't know what to do. And I said, mom, you should become a realtor. You love people. You've drugged me as a child to more open houses on a Sunday than I can possibly count. That's what you should do. She thought about it for a few seconds. She's like, you know what? That's what I'll do. Fast forward a year. We're comparing paychecks, if you will. I'm I'm two years in, maybe at this point, working at Wells Fargo, 24-ish years old, just a couple years out of college. And she's a year into working as a realtor. She makes twice what I make. And I'm going, I'm in the wrong business. And so right, right then I was like, if mom can do it, I can do better. How about that for a competitive yes. household? <laughs> and so uh, that was my entry point into real estate was was as a realtor in, in 2004, different okay. era. Yeah, 2004. That was uh, right before the market turned. Yeah. So interesting, interesting time in real estate for sure. Yeah, no doubt about that. So became a, became a realtor, loved it, felt like a glove. Five years later, I owned a Remax, had the number one team in the state of Iowa for Remax, recognized by the Wall Street Journal for having a you know, top 100 team in the country at the time. I get moved forward a couple of years and I'm going, I love what I'm doing, making good money, but it's not ultimately going to get me where I, to where I want to go. So that's when I entered into investing. And I started with what I knew, started with single family homes and started fixing and flipping single family homes at that time. And it seems like that's, that's where a lot of uh, the real estate agents and realtors I know, and a lot of the investors are, it is in the residential space, sure. whether it's single family or it's multifamily. And right now there's a lot of guys that are entering with short-term rentals. Yes. So that's what I'm seeing. So, you know, with your uh, commercial experience, it just, uh, yeah, it's it just a different, uh, a different world, if you will. You're totally right. So now bring me, I'm bringing current, you know, we go five years or so in the single family world, fixing, flipping, started adding rentals. At that point I was going, you know, this is, this is cool. I wonder if there's something else I got presented and you know, and I bought a fourplex and eight plex. So that's the biggest multifamily that we have is an eight plex. And then I got presented with an opportunity to buy a 17,000 square foot warehouse. And I'm going, I don't know enough about, about this, but I knew what I was doing wasn't going to get me to where I want to go. Adding one door at a time on the rental portfolio wasn't going to get me there to meet my goals. And so I evaluated this, studied it, learned a lot, bought that property five or six years ago at this point, still own it today, love the property. And as soon as I bought that, I fast forward a few months going, you know what? I never hear from these tenants. And 
I'm the property manager. I'm just going, I so, think I'm on to something. So I, I think that would be a, the fear a lot of uh, residential investors have is going from, let's say, having eight tenants paying for your mortgage down to maybe just one or two. And now you're saying that wasn't such a bad thing because you're not having to, to fix the toilets and they are paying the rents on time. I love everything about it. If I can get, if we could take a, a, a giant building, just take it down to still one giant building, but one tenant uh, and only one tenant, then it becomes our focus is on underwriting that tenant, understanding who they are, what business they're in, their, the strength to know that they're going to stay and pay. Uh, and that particular property is occupied. It's, it's in a warehouse, but it is a bakery. That's how it's set up. That's how it operates. And it's a bakery for the largest grocer in the state of Iowa. I'm not real okay. worried about them their inability to pay. Because if the largest grocer goes away, we have a whole different story in the local economy. Nice. So definite tenant stability. And uh, I think what you said is a little bit different than most residential investors see is you're underwriting not just the property, but the tenant themselves. So it's not just pulling a credit score. It's it's not looking at, let's say, a residential application. Do you do a little bit further, uh, let's say, investigating of, of the tenant? Yeah. So it varies from what tenant quality you have. Let's start at, you know, at one end of the extreme to go, you have a publicly traded company. Well, you've got a publicly traded company. You can see like um, Dollar Tree, for example, is, is a property yep. we own. They're a tenant of ours. They're publicly traded. You can see exactly what their, what their credit quality is, as rated by Standard & Poor's or Moody's to understand is, you know, is that a credit risk that you're willing to take? And on the other end of the extreme, the building I'm sitting in today is 11,000 square feet of office. There are 10 suites in the office, about 1,000 square feet apiece. These are mom and pop businesses, right? We operate our real estate business out of here. Two doors down from us, there's a CPA with two people. So it becomes a very different credit tenant credit mix there. And this looks this office looks more and more like how you underwrite a tenant to live in your house. It's what's your credit score? What do their tax returns say? Do they make money? And do I think they're going to have the ability to stay around for one to three years and still operate their business as a, as a CPA, as a chiropractor? Interesting. So you look at the two different investors or two different tenants, completely different. Let's go back to the, the building that you purchased, your first uh, warehouse, the bakery that, that you're in. Can you talk about that deal a little bit? How did you how did you get into it? What was the transition going from the residential into the commercial? What made it easier? What facilitated that process for you on your first transaction? Mm, yeah, good question. What made it easier for me and uh, gave me comfort level was doing a number of fix and flips, having some money behind me to feel comfortable. Like I, like there was a risk, but the downside risk really wasn't very significant. It's if the tenant leaves, well, if the tenant leaves, the building's actually worth more money because the tenant is way under market rent for, for what's there. So I suspect the tenant's going to be there for another 12 or 13 more years from this point because of the number of options they have in place. I think that's amazing that you, you have it built in. So you know this tenant, not unlike a residential tenant who may stay two or three years and then grow out of the property, these commercial tenants can potentially stay in perpetuity. You know, yeah. they can stay for as long as that building is a sound structure for their their business. Where a lot of times residential tenants just naturally outgrow residential spaces. Yeah, you know, think about, you know, residential tenants are there for convenience. A lot of it has to do with personal tastes, size of their family, various demands like that on the 
commercial side, that physical space is a tool. It is a tool for them to operate their business and earn income. And either they grow, and if that's the case, they need a bigger tool, or if, you know, if business isn't good and they trim down, they need a smaller tool. But it is simply a tool for them, no different than a piece of machinery, a piece of computer equipment, something that allows their business to function, to earn money. Going back to one of the things that gave me strength was understanding the loan process. Where would I go borrow money from? I got comfort level with that out of the fix and, flix, fix and flip business and borrowing and buying some rental properties. Understanding commercial loans, borrowing in that capacity gave me strength to understand the questions that one would need to ask. Perfect. So the financing, really understanding the financing piece. And I think that that is definitely unknown for most residential investors. What's the best way to to understand the the commercial side of it if you just don't have that that experience? Is it going down to Wells Fargo where you used to be a banker? My guess is probably not. So you're probably wanting to talk to a commercial broker to understand what they're looking for because it's not going to be income-based. So they're not actually looking at your income necessarily to qualify the property. They're looking at the property specifically and how it's going to generate revenue and how that makes sense for their formula. Would you say that's part of your overall process when it comes to analyzing commercial real estate deals? Yeah, absolutely. looking at the loan? You, you got it. Yeah, a loan's a big component, but you hit it on the head. They want to look at the building, what's the building, and then who's the tenant, and what's their ability to pay? What's the income coming out of that property? That's how they're analyzing this deal. And then ultimately, it'll fall on you last. Who are you? What's your credit look like? What's your income look like? In the event this whole thing fails, they want to know that you're a stand-up person with some ability to make sure that they're going to be made whole. They're looking to minimize their risk exposure in every avenue they possibly can. Just wanted to thank our sponsor, U.S. Tax Advisors Group, a cost segregation company. If you're interested in a cost segregation study, log on to the website, realestateexplainer.com and click the cost segregation link at the top of the page. With a commercial property then, does it make more sense to go in and buy a property that has a stable tenant in already, the bakery that's already there, or the car dealership that's already got the, you know, the car business that's in place. And then you're working the deal around the financing that's already in place. And then you're plugging in, obviously, your credit and your background and experience as well. Or is building a standalone, let's say, like storage facility, a good idea to get into knowing what the business is going to generate down the road? And then I was, I think, too, because, you know, fix and flip, or is it looking at an underperforming business knowing that you're going to do a value add? You're going into a warehouse that maybe has one tenant, no office, and you're going to add some office space and maybe split that so you can bring in more rental income. So that's kind of three things that I just rattled off. But those are the questions that pop in my mind when I'm, I'm thinking about commercial property. So let me know. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I know. <laughs> for me, I'd, I'd, my question path would go down, what's your risk tolerance? Because there's, yeah. no, there's, no, there's no wrong answer for any one of those. Which one's better? It's only a function of which one's better for you. I can tell you from our standpoint today, we don't build ground up. So a piece right. of raw ground to erect something from scratch would just be off the list because it's not something we have a skill set in or that we're doing today in today's economic environment. A value add is, right, you know, depending on the asset, for us, it's largely industrial and flex property. Uh, all of you owned a whole multitude of things through Iowa. That is our focus. That's right in our wheelhouse to be able to be able to do that. On the other end of the spectrum, 
make up an extreme example, a Starbucks with 10 years left in the lease. Tremendously stable and probably dynamite from your ability to get repaid in, on, a, on a monthly basis. And, and your rate of return is going to reflect that significantly lower just be, to reflect the risk associated with that. So the stable, that stable investment is going to have that lower rate of return. Exactly. So you're probably going to pay, pay more for this property because it's got a stable tenant in it yep. and you're going to earn less year after year, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Correct. It just depends on your end goals, which you talked about a second ago. Yep. You're that exactly right. Yep. Exactly. So the value add properties, can you maybe talk about a value add property that you've done recently? Give us an example of what that looked like. Yeah. I'll give you, why don't I give you two examples? One is the building I'm sitting in here. It's an office because everybody says, and it's, it's the only office we own in our portfolio. And, and uh, I bring it up because it's comical because everybody says office is dead, right? It's it's so bad. Yeah. For me, we bought this property about 18 months ago, really a B location. I would call it a C property at the time, which that's my favorite combination of a value add situation on any asset class, B location, C property. So now it's a function of improve because you can change the property, you can't change the neighborhood, Right. Not with one property that is. So it's the ability to come in here and we did a number of things physically to the property, painted the whole thing, uh, swapped out a number of furnaces, went in, remodeled a number of the units. And then it was a function of going to work on the leasing side. When we bought it, it was it was 40% occupied. So 60% vacancy in, the, in this right. property. So go to work on that and went through, executed a leasing plan where 18 months later, now it's 80% occupied. We've got 20% vacancy left at this point. And I'm going, we definitely reposition this. We're going through right now and doing a refinance to pull some money out. But thankfully, we negotiated the interest rate, knowing I, that's what I wanted to do and knowing we wanted to keep it. We negotiated what the interest rate was going to be at the time we purchased it 18 months ago. So we're not getting clobbered in financing today. So that's uh, a totally different animal than residential as well. You're negotiating sure. the rate yeah. with the bank. You're yeah. having a real conversation. Yep. Yep. Ap- absolutely. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so it's a, it, we're actually in the middle of the appraisal, I think takes place here in 10 days or so. And so we're in the middle of, of coming to the backside of that. And it'll be a property we end up keeping. And a one property we purchased this year, an example of a value add, which we're in the middle of, haven't yet executed on, is we had a piece of uh, a property, about 15,000 square foot warehouse that we bought. And there were two parcels of ground one on each side of the property, totaling about six and a half acres. That was not, in my opinion, not priced into the deal. So you got two build shovel ready lots, zoned industrial, ready to go, that were not priced into the deal. And we immediately listed both for sale when we're still in the process of executing that plan today. So neither one is transacted. But we think we can realize that, you know, sometime over the next one to three years and it'll move the needle in a very big way relative to that, that particular deal. So that's amazing. That's finding money. So you're finding money or you're creating money out of thin air because this is an existing property that had a lot that, you know, you could split off. That's amazing. So it's really understanding the individual lot or not lot, the building that you're buying, what else is around it? What other opportunities are there? You know, what can you do with it to transform this property into at the end of the day, what can you do to transform it into money? And, you know, residential and commercial, you typically make money when you purchase the property. That's right. And that's a perfect example. Yep. So that's pretty, pretty amazing. Is there a specific um, 
process that you use to analyze the deals? Yeah, when we bring a property in, well, the first thing is we know exactly what we want to buy, meaning it needs to fit a certain box. So right. let's say, for example, uh, a value add, you know, our value add side of our portfolio. It's, we, we want to buy in the Midwest, want to buy in populated cities, meaning in, in a five-mile radius, we want at least 100,000 people. Uh, we're looking for very some very specific clear heights for the property. And we're looking for twenty to 60,000 square feet of property. And we're looking for a value-add component, some a value-add component that we can realize on the next five years. So the very first thing that happens when we get a property presented to us is run it through that filter. Does it line up with what I just rattled off? Do any of those things, you know, does the population line up? Do, are the clear heights in line? What's the age of the building? We're typically buying 1970s and newer. And okay. so it, it just runs through a filter to go, all right, pass that test. Great. Now, what's the value add component? When do we think we can realize that? And we're working through a spreadsheet then to go, okay, if we if we if we buy it at, you know, it's as simple as we buy it at what they're asking for. We do these things, the value add piece, and we sell it in three years, four years, five years. What's our rate of return going to be? And if it looks somewhat in an area that seems like it could be marginally acceptable, then we go to start to go to work on this and really refine the numbers to build a business plan. Now, with those properties, once you so we have the the deal analyzer, if you will. Yeah. When you're when you're sourcing these deals, now do you have a team of people who are looking at the MLS, the MLS, or LoopNet it as it is in commercial, or are you looking for off market deals where you're dialing owners and searching the deals? What's your method of finding these deals, acquiring these properties? Yeah. So two methodologies. One is you know LoopNet. Crexy, CoStar, all in that, all, I would just categorize that as all on market. Yep. So everything that's on market, we'll look. We've got engines set up, right? The, the search engine set up to automatically send us and notify us when something pops on the market. But the bigger one for us this year, at least, for buying property has been off market, but not direct to seller off market, talking to brokers, building relations with, relationships with brokers, commercial brokers okay. specifically. And just conveying what it is that we're after, building a relationship so they know, you know, we've got a demonstrated track record of closing on deals. So they know we can actually, if we're going to put something on our contract, we, we're, we're going to work darn hard to get to that finish line, to get it done. Okay, that makes sense. So you've got, a, you know, utilizing the broker network to bring transactions to you, I think is powerful. A lot of times in today's world, uh, a lot of people are looking to kind of work their way around that broker. But at the end of the day, you know, these brokers have been in the communities for decades. They have pools of, you know, clients that they've worked with. And you never know when they have that right property that's going to fit your need. So I think that that's an excellent recommendation. And I don't think anybody should ever discount working with a realtor or a broker, whether it's residential or commercial, because you just don't know what they have. And a lot of times, they only work within their wheelhouse. So they're looking for an outlet for their unique properties. I had a deal once in, uh, God, it was in Palm Springs, and it happened to be, uh, it was Elvis Presley's property on the West Coast in California. Okay. And I was doing residential loans myself at the time, and I got a call from someone who's just trying to place a deal and he was fishing because he had nobody else who would help finance it. And that was exactly it. It's, you know, they're always reaching out, looking for opportunities. So I think if you're opening yourself up to the broker network, it's uh, it's just a great opportunity. It's been terrific for us, you know, going back on, on the house side, you know, in, in my 
in our team, you know, over the last handful of years, we had bought a lot of properties direct to seller. And it just, my experience is sellers or owners of commercial property value the relationships with commercial brokers far more than a homeowner values a relationship with a residential agent. They just, they see the value associated with that and what they'd pay is far more worth it versus versus a house person has a different set of needs and circumstances. And it's probably the difference between uh, an individual making an individual decision and a business person making a business decision. All right. That makes sense. So if you were to, you know, transition or you're looking to transition from the residential, like you said, over to commercial, how do you get started? What does that process look like for the average residential investor? What do they do? I mean, what do they do? Are they, are you bringing on partners on individual deals or should they start looking at smaller commercial opportunities? Just how do you get started? Yeah. My advice is, you know, first create a vision. Where do you want to go? Then just go the most direct path to be able to get to that vision. If you want to be in commercial real estate, if that's your goal, well, by golly, go to commercial real estate. I wouldn't circumvent thinking you got to go get experience in houses. I would just go straight into commercial real estate. So it would be, you know, there's a couple of paths one can go. If I was to do it again, I probably would have either gone down a commercial lending path or I would have gone down the commercial brokerage path to be able to build my resume of experience or directly into a commercial investor of some nature. Figure out how you can get on a team, figure out how you can partner with somebody. How can you add value to somebody's somebody's world doing whatever it is that you can do or you do do extraordinarily well? And somebody's got to want to somebody's got to want to be part of that. The commercial side versus the residential. Commercial is so much easier from a team standpoint because it's a team sport. There's lots of places on this that you can add value to somebody because there's always a need on the commercial side. All right. Yep. Definitely powerful stuff. If our listeners want to reach out to you to get more information on the properties that you currently have or just to learn more about what you're doing, how would they reach you? What do you what yeah, do you recommend? You know, here's what we're doing today. It's it's completely focused on buying commercial property. And one of the things I've uh, I've noticed, you know, I was in the, the as a residential realtor for years and years and years, is that realtors as a whole, and especially in today's environment where realtors are, there's been a lot of talk about realtors and buyer broker fees coming, uh, say heavily being challenged, if you will. And so yeah, who knows what the exact the landscape's going to be. One thing I'm certain of is people need alternatives. They need multiple streams of income. And so one of the things that we're doing is connecting with realtors on our syndications. That is where you know we go off, find the property, manage it, do everything. And then in this case, limited partners, in many cases, realtors come in and are partners with us. They write they write checks to be limited partners as an investor in deals that we do. And, and ultimately, my goal there is to allow an agent to become optional, to become agent optional, to ultimately retire or at least have the passive income to do what they want when they want to have that total freedom. So the best way to connect with me or learn more about what we do is go to agentoptional.com. Neil, thank you for being on the podcast today. Always love talking to you and uh, just really appreciate all the information, wisdom, and guidance that you provide. So thanks for having you on today. Thanks for being, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Brian. If you would like more information on Northport, visit realestateexplainer.com backslash Northport.